We continue the Shir in Navi. To keep close tabs on the historical details, remember that we are dealing with two separate sections of the Jews. As we said, there was the division of the 12 tribes. The two tribes of the Jews, Yehuda and Binyamin, were under the leadership of the reign of kings, descendants of King David. They were special because they were in possession of the holy city of Yerushalayim, and the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple. It is important to us because we presume that today, the Jews of today are all part of those two tribes. Plus, of course, in the Beis Hamikdash, there were the Kohanim, the tribe of Levi. The other ten tribes are known as the Ten Lost Tribes. We're zeroing in on the final chapter of the Ten Lost Tribes. Possibly by next week, next Monday, we'll have the story of how they were lost. We will not tell what happened after that. That you will get on the Wednesday shiurim because we're running a very close parallel between the Navi story and the Gemara story. The Gemara we're learning now deals with this portion of history. So in the Wednesday shiurim eventually we'll get to this part of the story. We'll allow this part to be left for the Gemara shiurim. Now what we're up to now is the king of the Malchus Yisrael, the last king we dealt with, ten tribes was Yehu, who was a very powerful fighter, who wiped out all the family and descendants of the wicked king Achav, according to the command of the Navi, the prophet Elisha, and he ruled, he reigned for 28 years, until finally he passed away. His son, Yehoachaz, the son of Yehu took over. Yehoachaz was not a strong king. He suffered at the hands of Chazoel, and Chazoel was the king of Aram, the king of Syria, to whom Elisha Hanavi had spoken originally and cried before him and said, I predict you're going to torment, harass the Jews, cause them a lot of bloodshed and suffering. And here the prediction was fulfilled. Hazael, the king of Aram, in addition to his son, his successor, Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, too, caused the Jews a lot of suffering, loss of life, and continuous attacks against them. Despite this, Yorachos did not turn to Hashem and Tefillah to pray to Hashem to help him. He kept following Avedizorah. He served Avedizorah, he worshipped it. But towards the end, he began to realize that it is best, after all, daven to Hashem. When he did that, he received a little respite. For the latter part of his life, he lived in peace without these attacks. He ruled for a total of 17 years, and during his time, the army of the Jews dwindled. They were very small and very weak. When he passed away, his son, Yoash, Yoash, the son of Yoachas, took over. Yoash reigned for a period of 29 years. He was a stronger king. This time there were a number of incidents that took place. First place, Elisha Hanavi. Elisha Hanavi was the main student of Eliyahu Hanavi. He had taken over, and remember this point, we're going to deal with it today. At the time of Eliyahu Hanavi's Estalkus, when he passed away, he rose up to heaven, and before he went to heaven, by the way, there is no grave of Eliyahu Navi. No one can say he can visit his grave. 
No such grave exists. There is a cave in Haifa, but no grave of his. Before he ascended to heaven, Elisha Navi made a request of him, which was granted. The request was, he said, that he be given, Elisha Hanavi be given twice the power of his mentor, his rabbi, Elianavi. An unusual request. It seems like an impossible request. And yet the request was granted. We've gone through that topic many a time. We've explained it thoroughly. But today we come to not the explanation, but the realization of it. At this point, Elisha Navi became ill. This was not the first time he was ill. He'd been ill before, but he became ill where it was obvious that he was about to pass away. The king, Yoash, came to visit Elisha Navi at his bedside. He saw that he was about to pass away, and he began to cry very bitterly. He cried out the same words that Elisha Navi had used before. His words were, Avi, Avi, my father, my father. You are the father of the Jews. You have raised them. You have nourished them. You have cared for them. You are the might and power of the Jews. Rechav Yisrael. What can we do without you when we are so weak now in the face of our enemies? Elisha Navi, in his last moments, replied, Take your bow into your hands and place an arrow into the bow and then open the window towards the east. The king did this quickly. He said, now hold that bow ready to shoot and I will place my hands over yours. He did this. He, the arrow shot out of the bow, straight, direct course. Lishnavi said to Yoash, the king, with this, you are going to defeat your worst enemy. Despite the weakness of the Jewish army, despite the lack of military, soldiers, weaponry, you will still defeat them. Now, my next order is, again, take the bow and arrow and shoot in a downward motion. The king did this, put an arrow into the bow, he shot down a second and a third one, and then he stopped. And Elisha became very angry and said, you stopped, you fool, had you continued, and waited for me to tell you to stop, you would have wiped out the enemy entirely. This way, you're going to defeat Aram three times and no more. Three separate battles. You'll have three battles against the Syrians, and those three battles you'll be victorious, but not any more than that. At that point, Elisha Hanavi was the Stalic. He passed away, and of course, in his case, he was buried. There is to this day the grave of Elisha Hanavi, which is visited by many Jews. Following this, the prophecy was fulfilled, of course, and Yoash became very mighty in battle. In three successive battles, he struck very decisive blows against Aram, against the Syrians. A short time later, though, in the land of Moab, remember that the Jews were surrounded then, just as they are today, by different Arab tribes. The land of Moab had small bands, like the PLO, the terrorists, that invaded, came to attack Israel at various occasions, various places. And they were, there were very small groups of these terrorists that terrorized the borders, the inhabitants of the villages at the borders. One day, a funeral was taking place. They were carrying a coffin, the body of a man. And at that moment, they were just passing by 
the grave of Elisha Hanavi. And that grave is made in a form of a cave. It's an insertion where the coffin was placed. As they passed by this cave, this band of Moab terrorists jumped out at them from the forest and attacked. In desperation, in fright, they dropped the body of this corpse they were burying and they fled. They dropped this body right into the cave of Elisha Hanavi. The body, the dead body rolled till it reached the point where it actually touched the bones of Elisha Hanavi. The moment that contact was made, the man stood up, came back to life, and walked away. This was a miracle of Tchias HaMesim, resurrecting the dead, bringing the dead back to life. So, the Gemara says, we now have the fulfillment of the blessing of Elisha Hanavi. Blessing was that Elisha Hanavi should have twice his power. Christ's power means what was the most outstanding miracle of Eliyahu He brought back a dead child to life. One child. He performed the miracle of Chiyas HaMesim once. In the case of Elisha Hanavi, he had performed that miracle once in his life too, brought back a child to life. And now, though he had already passed away, still he retained his miracle powers, and because of just touching him, this dead man came back to life only for the sake of fulfilling that blessing of having Pishnayim, twice the power of Eliyahu. To continue on this vein, because there is, we'll take the second side of the picture, there's a machlok, there's a debate on this. This vein, though, the Gemara continues, this was an actual case of Tchiyas HaMesim. Who was this person that deserved to come back to life, to relive, to live again? The Gemara says that there were two very great women in Jewish history, two prophets, female prophets. One was Devara Hanaviyah, the time of the judges. The second was Chulda Hanaviyah, the time of the kings, who lived at this time. Chulda, the woman prophet, leader of the Jews, who had a husband. His name was Shalom ben Tikva. This husband, Shalom, passed away. This was his funeral. Uh, it would seem that being the husband, the husbands of these two women surely must have been called Mr. Chulda and Mr. Devora. Who would know their names? With such illustrious wives, leaders, prophetesses, holy women, they were obscure. At the same time, even if they could not match their wives in greatness, they must have done something good to deserve having such wonderful wives because not every man is to have a kala or a wife that is really that good. We have a few here, but it's still rare, uncommon that you get a kala or a wife that is either that elevated in status or that is kind, pure, religious. So what did these husbands do. In this case, what did the husband of Chulda Hanaviya do to deserve such a wife? Well, there are boys here who can ask themselves the same question. What did they do to deserve the wives they have? <laughs> Although some ask that question with a groan. What did I do to deserve? Uh, the case of Shalom and Tikvas, to get back to the story itself, Imar says that 
he felt there were two things, two privileges. One, a wife like he had, second, to experience his lifetime, death, and then life again. Very rare type of experience. What was the mitzvah he performed that made him merit this? He answers that his zechus was that he sat at the gates of the city and as each person passed by, the wanderers who he saw was very thirsty, needed a drink very badly, he had a jug of water, would call this person over, would give this person this water to drink. To revive a person who was so weak, so fatigued from a journey, by giving him the life-giving water, this mitzvah was so great, a case of hospitality, that it deserved having him receive the privilege, the thrill of Chiyas HaMesim. Of course, this too cannot be taken that literally. When we say that a person is fatigued and tired, we don't necessarily mean physically. It could be, of course, spiritually. A person can be very well rested. After a good, solid meal, he feels fine, but his neshama, his soul, could be in a very poor state of health because he was very careful in feeding his body, his physical body, but he ignored the needs of the neshama, the soul. The soul gets nothing out of a good steak. In fact, the soul is strengthened on a fast day. The less the person eats, the stronger the soul. And therefore, when we speak about diets, we mean very well for the person. A diet is very healthy for the soul, aside from doing less harm to the body too. However, most important is the positive nourishment for the neshama, which is the study of Tata. study of Tata is always symbolized by drinking of fresh water. He stood there as a tzaddik. He noticed those who were poor in the study of Torah, who were poor in the knowledge of Hebrew law, and he very kindly fed them, spent his time in bringing those wanderers close. A wanderer is one who has strayed away from the right path, away from the path of Torah, who has estranged himself from the laws of the Torah from Hashem. He devoted his time not as a person who was a hidden tzaddik, went into a closed chamber, sat down and studied Torah and davened the entire day or most of the night. Rather than do that, he made contact with the outside world, with those who needed this spiritual assistance most. And for doing that, he deserved a new life. Hence, the miracle of Chiyas HaMesim. Now, this is one opinion. According to this opinion, the person brought back to life was a tzaddik himself, and with this act, there was fulfilled the blessing of Eliyahu Navi to his student Elisha Navi, the blessing of Pishnayim, double his powers. The Gemara says, however, that another opinion, a more definite opinion, that it was not fulfilled in this matter, because this was not Shalom ben Tikvas, who, according to the first opinion, says he came back to life, so much so, that he lived many years afterwards. He even had a son, Hanamel ben Shalom, who was credited to having been born to a person who had already died and relived. But the Gemara itself, the most opinions in the Gemara say this was not the case. The fact is, according to this contention, that the blessings of Eliyahu Navi, the Pishnai, the double powers meant, would bring back two people to life. One was the child brought back to life, Elisha Navi. The second was the case of 
Naaman, a general of Aram who had contacted a fatal case of leprosy. Leprosy is so fatal that a person who has this disease is considered a corpse even during his lifetime. The miracle of curing Naaman from this leprosy is considered the same as Tchiasamesim. Therefore, that bracha was fulfilled during Elisha Levi's lifetime. What happened in this case then? If that was already done by the case of reviving, curing Naaman, what was the story with this corpse that touched the bones of Elisha Levi and lived? Yor says, he lived, of course. He got up. He walked away. He walked 20 paces. They dropped dead very solidly, this time permanently. It was a very temporary item. Why did he get up and walk? Why did a dead man walk? We hear that very rarely, dead men walk, except on certain programs. This, this case was a case of the evil Navi. You recall back to the story we had with Adai Hanavi, Navi who spoke reprimandingly to Yeravim Benavot, who warned him. Adai Navi was a very great, one of the holy Navim. And then he was killed by a lion because he had committed a certain small act in eating food in a place where he should not have. At the house of a certain evil person, a false prophet, this false prophet, though he was a false prophet, though he was evil, he still recognized the fact that Adahanavi was a holy prophet. And so he went out to retrieve the body of Adahanavi, give him a decent burial, and then to command his children that when his time comes, when he dies, be sure to bury him next to Adai Hanavi. Eventually, we have the story where all the graves were destroyed except the grave of Adai Hanavi in that area. And this evil Navi, who was buried close to him, was saved for that reason. How was he buried close to him? This was the story. This was his funeral. He was being carried... At uh, the time of the attack by the terrorists, his body dropped into the, the cave of Elisha Hanavi. He made contact with Elisha Hanavi. And of course, a Russia, a wicked person, can never lie next to a tzaddik in actual contact. The moment he made contact, he was electrified and brought back to life for the sake of removing himself from the presence of Elisha Hanavi. As soon as he walked away a safe distance, he dropped down again family came back from this attack, they picked up his body and buried him close to Adahanavi. Close to him, but not that close. From this point, the Gemara learns too. A very vital point. A very vital fact. There is no such thing as claims of discrimination. Just as we cannot say that the Orthodox, the religious Jews, discriminate against women by putting up a mechitza, not allowing the mingling, mixing of the two, men and women. This is not because of discrimination, this is because of the mitzvah, the law of separation of the two. No one says that one is better than the other, although it's understood which one. We don't, we don't say so. But it is because the respect to Hashem, that is the requirement of both men and women to have pure thoughts no outside thoughts at the time of davening, hence the reason for the mechitza, the separation without which, without which a shul is not considered a shul, not considered a fit place, a kosher place to daven in. It is forbidden for any Jew 
go into a shul which has no mechitza, and as important as the mitzvah of tefillah b'tzibur is, to daven with a minion, it is better to daven alone, to daven with a minion of mixed seating, chas However, as we say again, they are both equal in most respects. In the case of a cemetery, there we do find positive discrimination that is demanded of us. You can have men and women together if they are on the same level, if they are equal. One might be better than the other, but if they're husband and wife, they are one. It is one soul. But if they are two people, two men, one is a tzaddik and one is a rasha, a wicked person, you must have two sections or two cemeteries. It is forbidden to ever have the two laid together in the cemetery, which is for an indefinite period. Even though the soul is in heaven, the soul of these two, the souls are so far, so greatly separated above. One is in Eden, and one is in the extreme opposite, yet the bodies too are to be reckoned with. Because in the body, as we explained in the Gemara, there is a kista de chiyusa, a slight trace of a soul left while it is in the grave, and therefore the, the body of the tzaddik must be given the same deep respect it was given during his lifetime. Hence, too, the reason why it is a custom of all Jews to visit the graves of tzaddikim. Now, since that grave is so holy, as for example, the grave of the Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov surely is in Ganeidin, completing the highest level of Ganeidin because he even got to the highest level, to the Elam Silos during his lifetime. He could rise to that level. Yet, his grave is that sacred that he appealed to Hashem and said that his appeal was accepted, granted, that his grave should be considered as sacred, as holy, a plot of land, as Eretz Yisrael itself. It is called Admas Kodesh. And so too, of course, this applies to all the great tzaddikim amitim, the greatest tzaddikim. Now, since this is so holy a soil, so sacred a place, you surely cannot contaminate it by putting in proximity to it, close to it, the body of a Russia, one who was wicked, one who lived a life of tumor, because this desecrates the cover, the honor of the tzaddik. And that is why it is a rule in Shulchan that you can't even put close to one another a tzaddik and a complete tzaddik, tzaddik gomor, and a tzaddik of a much lower level. They too must be separated. There must be different levels, different sections for all types of Jews. We cannot, of course, penetrate into the heart of a Jew and know how good he was. That's not our responsibility. If we know that a Jew conducted himself in accordance, let us say, with Shemitah Shabbos, study of Tata regularly, and he is one that is fit to be buried in a regular, pure religious plot in the cemetery. If we know he was a Mechal Shabbos, he ate on kosher, conducted himself against the Hebrew laws, he cannot be buried in that same plot. There must be a separate plot for him. If we know that the person was an outstanding scholar, a sage, a tzaddik in all respects, then he should be placed on a separate, again, a separate plot, reserved for, let's say, tzaddikim, rashi yeshivas, g'deli Israel, the 
just as we have in many cemeteries, <coughs> or in Israel, you have the Chelkas Harabonim, for example, special division where you have all the famous Rashi Yeshivas of the past. Now, certainly, then, you cannot have the body of a Russia like this false prophet lying next to Elisha Navi. And that is why even a miracle of this extent had to take place, be performed, in order to separate the two, that Elisha Navi should not suffer the closeness of this person next to him even for a moment. Now, this is the reason, according to most opinions in the Gemara, for this act of Kriyas which was very temporary, and which did not constitute the fulfillment of the bracha of Pishnayim by Elianavi. And now we go back to the stories of the kings of the two tribes. Malcha Yehuda. As we said, Yehoash, the king of the two tribes, was killed by his servants. His son, Amatsya, took over the kingdom, and his first act was to put to death the two slaves, the two servants who had killed his father, Yoash. However, he was good in this respect, that he did not punish the family of these two assassins. Because the Torah says, children should not pay for the sins of their fathers. So he just had these two assassins put to death, and that was it, which was a good act on his part. Following this, Amatsya decided to amass, mobilize a large army to to battle against the country of Edom. And he mobilized an army of 300,000 men. And then, to ensure himself, he hired an additional army of 100,000 men from the kingdom of, of Israel, the ten tribes. Hired meant that he paid a high price, took a hundred bushels of silver. At that moment, a prophet came to him to give him warning. This prophet a moment of deviation to explain about whom we're speaking. The Gemara speaks about a Pasuk in the Torah which says, beginning of the book of Yeshaya Navi, one of the greatest prophets out, starts with Chazain Yeshayahu ben Omitz. Yeshayahu, the son of Omitz, the prophet who was so great that he saw visions, clear visions of heaven, and he repeated certain words that Moshevedo said, repeated to an extent. Of course, there is a vast difference. He was one of the most famous prophets in Jewish history. There's a whole Sefer Nevi'im from Yeshayahu Navi. Yimara says, though, that note, the first sentence states, Yeshayahu ben Omotz. Why tell us the name of his father? Yimara states as a positive fact that wherever the Torah tells us the name of a prophet plus his father, it teaches us that his father, too, was a Navi. In this case, where do we ever find throughout history the prophecy of Omotz? There's no mention made of it. The Gemara says, therefore, that in this case, when the Torah says a prophet came to Amatsya ben Yawash to speak to him, this was Omotz, the father of Ishayanavi. He warned him that the help of this hundred thousand soldiers from the ten tribes would bring about his defeat send those soldiers back. It's a commercial type of soldier, send them back. So the king Amatsya listened to this prophet and said, but what about the money I paid them? They won't return the money. 
The Navi said to him, you send them back and rely on Hashem. Hashem will give you back more than this amount of money. This he listened to, he obeyed, he went out into battle, and he soundly defeated the country of Edom. This was a very important victory to him. He was very happy about this. Of course, there was a side effect. Despite what had transpired before, these renegades that hired themselves out for murder, soldiers attacked these Jews in the tribe of Yehuda and killed 3,000 of them. It was a side effect, but it still did not deter, subtract from the important victory over Edom. Following this, again we see the evil that existed at that time. Instead of turning to Hashem in thanks and praise and offering sacrifices of Kabbalah, Hamatzia instead turned to the Avedizora, to the idols. This time the prophet came to him and very sternly warned him against this. The king very angrily said to this Navi, who made you the king's advisor? Tell me what to do. You want me to get my servants to beat you to death? And the Navi said to the king, in that case then, because this is your final decision, you are going to be wiped out by yourself. You're going to find yourself following a plan that will result in your death. The king ignored him, and so the Torah says that a germ, a poisonous germ, entered the mind of Amatsya. This was not a physical, material germ. This germ came in the form of a thought. A thought entered his mind, and this, of course, in many cases we have what is known as a cancerous thought or a leprous thought, leprosy of the brain, which means that the brain physically is intact. The person could die because of leprosy of the brain. In most cases this means where kefira, atheism, takes over the person's mind. And this destroys the person completely. The brain is the seat of the neshama, the soul. The of a person that allows these atheistic thoughts to enter into his brain, it means that his brain has contacted leprosy. In this case, this poisonous thought entered his mind, which was due to the warning of the Navi. This thought was one of, it was similar to idol worship, because the Gemara says very often that geus, conceit, haughtiness, is equivalent to of a desire, idol worship. So he felt that he was that strong and that powerful, he had defeated Edom, he sent a message to the king of the ten tribes. At that time, Yoash was the king of the ten tribes. And he said to him, how about coming out and facing me in battle? I challenge you to a battle. He felt so sure of himself now. Yoash sent back a message. Yoash that time, too, had been successful against Aram. Remember, he had defeated the mighty Syrian army three times in a row, according to the blessings of Elisha Navi. But he was not that 
evil as to take advantage of Amatzia, the king of the Jews, especially since they were both Jewish, why not avoid civil war and bloodshed? So he sent back a message to Amatzia saying, let me give you an analogy. One time, the thorn, the lowly thorn, sent a message to the mighty oak. and said to the mighty oak, I offer you a shidduch, a match. My daughter and your son be mated. Let them both get married. And the mighty oak replied, I have those who will take up my honor. And all the wild beasts of the field of the forest came and trampled this thorn, or dead, to confront the oak with such a base offer. And so therefore, my advice to you is, Tamatsya, you defeated Edom, fine. That's like a thorn. You hurt a small army like Edom. But now, don't let it go to your head. My advice is, stay home, enjoy yourself with this small victory. Don't think yourself that powerful. Amatsya ignored this warning, this advice. He went out to battle, and in the battle he was wounded mortally, and his disloyal servants who saw this decided to finish him off. So they murdered him, and his body was brought back to Jerusalem. There he was buried. Following this, his son, Azariah, also known as Uziyahu, took over the kingdom. Uziyahu was 16 years old at the time when he became king, and he ruled over the two tribes of Yehuda for a period of 52 years, one of the longest reigns in history. He was very good, a very good king, different than all his, most of his predecessors, in the sense that he did not worship idols, since that he spread true emuna, and so he was very successful in battle too. He defeated every one of his enemies, and they all feared him. This went on for some time, for about approximately half the time of his reign. And then suddenly, one day, the same germ attacked him. He went into the base Hamikdash, and he felt that he was, or should be recognized, as the eminent authority. How can it be that he as king cannot do what the Kohen Gadol does. So he took a pan and placed the spices that he used for the carbon called Ketoris on this pan and brought it into the Holy of Holies. And there the Kohanah was shocked. And he said to him, leave. You cannot dare to bring a carbon. You may be king, but there's no that if King David enters into here, the penalty is death. He became very angry and said, don't try to stop me because this is what I want. He began to do the service of the Ketoris and suddenly on the outside, the exterior part of his, his head, which is the forehead, directly opposite the brain, a big splotch appeared. A leprosy appeared suddenly on his forehead. The Gehenna was so shocked because that means he was Tomei. Tumor in the Beis had to be withdrawn immediately. He too was so frightened by it that he was taken outside 
that from that moment on, Uziyahu, or Azariah, was placed in confinement. Being Tommy, he could not stay in the palace or around the base of Mikdash. A special place was built for him, like solitary confinement, and there he spent the rest of his life. Those who visit Yerushalayim, those who have visited the old city, there is the place called the home, or the cell of King Uziyahu. It is known as the cell of King Uziyahu, though as we said, more often than the Torah, his name is Azariyahu. But it's important to know that both are the same person. He had two names, Azariyahu and Uziyahu. At the end of <clears throat> 52 years of reign, Uziyahu, the king, passed away, and his son, Yosam, took over. Yosam ben Uziyahu reigned for a period of 16 years. He was a good king. He did not cause any waves, peaceful life. He died after this reign, and then his son, Achaz, took over. Uh, note, Yosam was good, Achaz was bad. This was a seesaw affair. A good king, a bad king, it alternated. Achaz was a very wicked king, as far as worshipping idols, as far as spreading Abadah Zorah, though he was, too, a descendant of King David, the two good tribes. At that time, the Ritzin, the king of Aram, Syria. This was a new era. King of Syria became a new king, Ritzin, was very powerful, came together with the, at that time, the king of the ten tribes, whose name was Pekach ben Amaliyahu, both banded together to do battle against Ahaz, the king of the two tribes. Of course, there could have been no chance at all of survival for Ahaz. Ahaz hit upon a plan. He sent a message to the king of Ashur. Until now, we have not heard of Ashur. At this point, a new kingdom arose, the kingdom of Ashur, which was so powerful and so successful it began slowly, and then it built up to a high speed to conquer the world, the entire world. So he called upon the king of Ashur, Tiglas Pileser, and he offered him a bribe. All the gold found in the treasures of the base of Iktosh, the holy temple, he said, I am your slave, I am your son. Accept you as my master, which is what you want, subservience. Come and help me against Aram and the ten tribes of the Jews. With this bribe given to the king of Ashur, uh, with especially the bribe of flattery, king of Ashur came to the assistance of Ahaz. He went out against the kingdom of Aram in battle. He captured the city of Damascus, Damascus and killed Ritzin, the king of Aram. He also beat back the kingdom of the ten tribes. We'll have more on that later. Ahaz later went to visit the king of Ashur, and there he saw a type of Mizbeach used for Avodah Zarah. He sent back the dimensions to the Kahanim, and insisted they build Mizbeach of that type in the base of Mikdash too which means that it was a very evil type of sin. Ahaz in general was an evil king of Adazara. Note, 
Malachos died on his bed. He was not killed, despite the fact that he was that evil, despite the fact that he desecrated the base of Mikdash, he was not killed and he was successful in battle, meaning he was not defeated at all. How can it be that one this evil should lead so peaceful a life? The answer is that he had a son after him who was Cheskiyahu Melech Yehuda. Cheskiyahu, who was the greatest Jewish king ever to live after David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech. There's a whole lengthy story about Cheskiyahu HaMelech, which we will get to both in Navi and in the Gemara, which we will have. A point where we will compare Cheskiyahu HaMelech to Moshiach. This is the coming stories. As we said, next week we have the story of the ten tribes at the last moments of their existence as a people, as a nation. Now, in closing, we again note that the Ika, the main thing the Jew is either living well or in Eitzara, is always to turn for assistance to Hashem. A Jew turning to Hashem with true emunah Turning to the prophets, meaning turning to the tzaddikim, can ensure a Jew of complete victory individually and for the entire Jewish people. Let's hope that we are zechah with this amuna, and with our eyes, we will be zechah to see the coming of Mashiach, Binyan Beis the Mapala, the downfall of all our enemies, the Yeshua of the Klai Yisrael. Amen. Amen.